welcome back to Intrigue Explained. I'm Dmitry Grozabinsky, and with me is my co-host, John Fowler. Welcome back, John. Thank you, Dmitry. How are you? Good to see you again. I am well, and it's a pleasure to see you. Uh, we were off last week. Many people don't know this, but uh, John was interviewing to replace Tucker Carlson on Fox News. But unfortunately, that didn't pan out, so he's back with us. Yeah. Um, that must hurt. It does. Uh, but particularly the feedback was he's too full of bile and has too loose an association with the facts. So I guess, you know, didn't quite make the cut for Tucker Carlson's replacement, which is actually very interesting. I don't know who's who, who's going to replace him. I, I mean, I don't have any idea of the convert of the the sort of controversial kind of person needed to replace him. I mean, there's candidates at Fox News. There's candidates outside of Fox News. The Crowder guy who's just very publicly gotten divorced, which is like the number one thing you need to be a conservative right-wing pundit is to be a very divorced man. Um, so th there's possibilities. You know, people thought Bill O'Reilly was irreplaceable. That's and true. then Tucker Carlson came in and just raised it to 11. So... I do think democracy is saved, let's put it that way. I'm heartened to to realize that I don't know any of the people you've just talked about, so that's good. Yeah. This is how my students feel when I start rattling off, like, political Twitch debaters, <laughs> and they're like, who the hell is this guy? What's Twitch? Uh, exactly. Like, a room full of, like, Italian university students being like, huh? <laughs> But no, seriously, you guys, you were away last week, but you weren't interviewing for Fox. You were being interviewed by Morning Brew. Uh, what was that like? Yeah, it was cool. Um, so a couple, a couple of weeks ago, or maybe about a month ago, they reached out. and they, they, Morning Brew, obviously, for folks who don't know, is the wildly successful um, media company that started a newsletter back in 2017 based, you know, loosely on US business and tech kind of stuff. Big, it's actually, if I'm honest, been a big influence for international intrigue. That that kind of pioneered that sort of informal chatting about the news in newsletter form that we have tried to kind of take on and, and adapt to geopolitics. Um, but anyway, they they have you know four and a half million subscribers, which we were joking before we well, before we started this podcast that yeah, international intrigue also has many subscribers if you know numbers are all relatively. <laughs> relatively the same we're in the same ballpark right on average you and morning brew have like two and a half million there you go so exactly yeah <laughs> um but more seriously they they asked us to be um a part of their they've, they've got some kind of extra products around learning and e-learning and and you know masters of business but online kind of courses and they asked us to give a presentation on the state of the media and and how to kind of be a more thoughtful consumer of news global news and communicator is Really cool. We, we kind of got to go see their offices in Manhattan, which are incredible. Um, and Kyle, who runs their learning uh, learning and development platforms, is one of the loveliest people I've come across. So it was a really good, good opportunity to kind of see how others do it. And also, I think the message that we were delivering, which is kind of like how you make sense of the world in an era when you can have all the information in one second how you make sense of the world and kind of stay sane was is an important one for people to be across. Yeah, I mean, the absolute fire hose of information exactly, fire hose is the word. that is out there now. But also, I think the fire hose encourages vitriol and encourages sort of, it's, it's a competition for eyeballs. To stand out. You don't stand out with nuanced takes that say, this is difficult. So that brings us to our main topic. The, the following three chemicals <laughs> in your on. kitchen will kill you. Stay tuned to the end and we'll tell you which ones. No. <laughs> Today, uh, our normal format is John and I trying to elucidate on an international relations topic by debating it. We're going to veer off that somewhat, though we'll still try to stay true to it, by breaking up the main portion of this podcast into just an update on the war in Ukraine. Attention on it isn't as high as it was even six months ago, so we thought it'd be useful to run through some of the big things that are happening, what's being anticipated, and do some takes back and forth on that. We'd also wanted to talk about some of China's recent diplomatic moves around the war in Ukraine. We will get into debates on that, and we're also going to briefly cover, as we always do, two stories from international intrigue, which you may have missed, and which we think are important and worth discussing. We're going to cover the rejection of an appeal against a defamation conviction, by prominent Indian opposition leader Rahul Gandhi, which has cost him his seat in parliament. Mm. And it's quite, a, I think, quite an important thing that is happening in the world's largest 
democracy and something that speaks to, to global trends in other democracies worth watching. But before we get into that, I wanted to touch base on something that touches on one of our earlier stories, which is that South Africa's president, Ramaphosa, recently found himself in a tricky diplomatic spot in that I believe South Africa is due to host the next BRICS summit, the BRICS leaders summit, in fact. This is the informal grouping of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. That was, I believe the term was invented by a Goldman Sachs analyst? McKinsey, I think. Yeah, one of them. I can't remember. Yeah, maybe it was Goldman Sachs. What, nefarious uh, exactly. professional service Somebody, provider. you know, evil. To, to kind of, as a way of packaging, sort of making sense of the world. And has since been embraced, in part by these countries themselves, but also by a lot of the commentariat as a bulwark against the West as this kind of counterforce against the West. So they are due to host this summit in South Africa. The challenge for the South African president is that Vladimir Putin is supposed to come to this, but the International Criminal Court has issued a warrant for Vladimir Putin's arrest related to crimes flowing from the war in Ukraine, um, specifically the abduction of Ukrainian children. And South Africa is a party to the ICC, so in theory, they're supposed to arrest Vladimir Putin the second he gets off his plane. And initially, I think John, the president, said they were they were considering pulling out of the ICC over this, and now they've walked it back. What what do you think is right. going on here and what's the significance? Yeah, I think you set it up well. I, I just Googled, by the way, you were right. It's a Goldman Sachs uh, economist that came up with the BRICS term. But yeah, I mean, I think you laid it out really well. There's this there's this tension between the international community, which I think, as we have discussed many times, is is at least shaped by, but I would argue donated by the US and the West, and its institutions, the the International Criminal Court being a you know a pretty good example of that Western-dominated uh, international architecture. So you're, on the one hand, you've got this kind of force, and then the, on the other hand, you've got BRICS, which is really a, you know an idea from those countries to kind of reduce the influence of the West on their affairs and world affairs. Um, and they're coming into tension. You, you, you nailed it when you said, I think, uh, that, that Ramaphosa said uh, we should leave the ICC if... If you know, if if things get come to a head when they host Putin, I think the presidential office walked those comments back. They seem fairly uh, problematic. You know, South Africa is a pretty, I wouldn't call it a Western country per se, but it's got very very close links with you know the UK, Europe, Australia, the US, a lot of investment, all that kind of stuff. And that those kinds of comments of like we're going to pull out of international organizations because we'd rather not embarrass you know not embarrass ourselves in Russia. Don't give investors and business people a lot of confidence. You know, I think probably this is a bit of a storm in a teacup overall. Like, I, I don't think they're going to leave the ICC. I don't think that Putin will be arrested in South Africa e either. I mean, maybe he doesn't go. It's too early to say. But I find that the chances of that are, you know, so negligible as to be not worth considering. It will probably just be a situation where, you know, if it's hosted in South Africa and he turns up, there'll be... A you know, a bit of sound and fury about people, you know, who say that the International Criminal Court has no teeth and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, realistically, I mean, as diplomats, we can tell you how how this will play out. There is no chance that this won't be pre-resolved before anybody gets on the plane. No one's leaving anything to chance. Yeah, they will agree the optics of how they want to handle this. If there's even the slightest chance that South Africa is actually considering arresting him, which I don't think there really is. He won't get on a plane. Otherwise, they will have statements ready to go and they will find some way to finagle, most likely by basically just ignoring their obligations to arrest Vladimir Putin by citing totally. something like his diplomatic immunity, granting him diplomatic immunity for the visit, and then saying that, you know, their obligations under the Vienna Convention trump their obligations under the ICC or something. Yeah. Some incredibly tedious reason that no one will be bothered to like actually it, it, look exactly. into too The deeply. best kind, as far as diplomats are concerned. Uh, so this will all be carefully <laughs> stage managed before before he ever gets there. But as you say, it does highlight the kind of tension. And it also, you know, we, we talked about international institutions and their toothlessness. The fact that this is a thing with a BRICS member is, yeah. you know, before yeah. Putin gets on a plane now as the leader of a P5 nuclear-armed country, he has to double-check that he is not going to be arrested on the tarmac under international law. 
a whole new a whole new tranche of diplomacy has to emerge for foreign minister lavrov and his global goons because of this icc ruling that wouldn't be there in the absence of it and a whole other country south africa has to tackle has to deal with it has to have this conversation it is no longer a business as usual visit because this dude's got an arrest warrant on it and that's not nothing no and i think in the language of geopolitics and geopolitical strategy it's all about raising costs and deterring behavior that you don't want right and it's pretty clear that the costs of vladimir putin you know conducting business as usual are higher than they would be otherwise and for south africa the cost of hosting putin and saying you know conferring some sort of legitimacy on the war in ukraine by hosting him in South Africa, the costs are now higher to them. So that that's that's a. I mean, I think this is exactly what you talk about when you say institution, international institutions influencing the global order. I have seen some commentary on. I mean, on that wonderful website Twitter, but you know, reasonable commentary nonetheless decrying or not decrying moaning about the fact that international institutions don't have the teeth they once used to have you know citing you know Slobodan Milosevic who was you know put in prison the idea that because Putin won't end up behind jails behind uh behind bars in jail that this is evidence that the system is breaking down and I think we've just fairly coherently pointed out why actually no it's kind of wild that the rush sitting Russian president has to even consider the prospect that he might be arrested for something he yeah. did on the other side of the world and that, and that that to me is a win when visiting that, right? a on paper at least strategic ally i mean we can do a whole other show on how mm. much bricks make sense as a concept and the answer is not a lot yes you can't build an entire alliance just over finding the u.s hegemony vaguely annoying when you have a million internal disagreements but fundamentally this is supposed to be someone who's a lot closer to putin's camp than a lot of other countries are and this is a thing i guess the last thing to say is that when he does if he does travel to south africa and south africa doesn't arrest him the u.s is not going to be in a great place to complain about that because they of course are famously not party to the icc and have in fact stated that if the icc were to ever charge a u.s national they're kind of committed to invading the hague and getting them out yeah, I feel like the US, the best course of action here for the US, if, if Putin does go to South Africa, is just to shut up and let other countries and the media do their business about making a big deal of it and not get involved and not tarnish it with that idea of like, this is just a US like imp- empire building kind of thing. Just, nope, we have nothing to do with it. It's the international community. And, and I have to say, again, involved. just from being a diplomat in multilateral settings and even bilateral settings, the US will sometimes turn to its allies and say, listen, this is something we believe, and this is something you believe. But the second we speak about it, it's going to be all about us and, you know, Iraq or whatever. So you guys take the lead on it, and we'll sit in the corner and say nothing, or even look vaguely upset about it, so that this has the oxygen to to roll forward on its own merits, rather Mm -hmm. than becoming another international referendum on our leadership. So that was our that was our first quick hit, and you know, if I can offer a plug for the Ash- excellent international intrigue newsletter, it's the kind of it's a kind of story I think I would have definitely missed if I didn't subscribe. So I very much encourage everyone to pick yeah. up on it. And the second story I wanted us to briefly touch on also very much falls into that category. Um, I don't think I would have seen this if it wasn't for your folks reporting, which is this court decision to uphold the conviction of Rahul Gandhi for defamation. I understand that the exact line in question, Mm -hmm. what he said that led to the charges, is all criminals in the country have the surname Modi. Now, there's there's a lot apparently to unpack there. His argument was that he was making a broader point (laughs) about corruption and sort of the Modi regime and how a fish rots from the head. It was interpreted as a defamation implying that not only is Modi himself a criminal, but in fact that everybody with the surname Modi is either potentially or a criminal. Modi being a very popular and common name, especially in Western India, there are class and caste elements to this, where there's like a whole debate about precisely where Mm. people with the name Modi, which apparently traditionally refers to sort of minor merchants, fit into. It, It is a whole thing 
Hmm. As, as always with politics in India, there are 500 layers to this. But the fundamental question, like the yeah. fundamental thing, is that this conviction basically means he is no longer a sitting member of parliament. He, he, it has cost him his seat in parliament, and he was a prominent opposition leader. And so there have obviously been mm -hmm. implications that perhaps this was a politically motivated attempt to use the criminal justice system and the courts to eliminate from political life a uh, an opponent for the for, for Modi. Your take, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I've read anything that says it wasn't behind the scenes politically motivated. You know, the, the case was brought by, I think, a local politician named Modi, kind of on <laughs> behalf of all Modis, in which you have to imagine the prime minister was wildly supportive of <laughs> uh, in in private. But no, I mean, I think the broader context here is, you know, let's not overstate how popular Rahul Gandhi was. I mean, he's obviously got incredible Indian political pedigree um, being, I think, is it, I may get this wrong, so maybe you have the facts in front of you there, Dimitri, but I think he's the grandson of Nehru. Is that right? Jawaharlal Nehru. Um, I, and then I think, and, and, I, and the son of Indira Gandhi, I think, Oh, so, sorry, Sonia Gandhi. Um, obviously no relation to Mahatma Gandhi, but anyway, l long story short, Gandhi comes from rich, rich political stock in India and was the leader of the Congress party, which in, in India traditionally has been the most powerful party until, you know, the BJP rose under Modi about a decade or, or more ago. Having said that, Gandhi wasn't popular. Modi is really, really popular in India. India. He's kind of got, I think, a 70% approval rating um, and, you know, barely barely a disapproval rating. So he's very popular. Um, and Gandhi had really recently tried to kind of raise his own profile. He he did this march across India for five months, kind of visiting the towns and, and holding small political rallies in this kind of effort to get back to grassroots campaigning in India and provide India with a viable op opposition to Modi. I think it was more successful than most folks thought it would be. But obviously now this has unseated him from parliament, prevents him from running again for... I think, again, a period of time, maybe five or eight years. So Modi has kind of been able to, you know, say, oh, very well done. Walked across India. You've improved. You, you know, you've raised your status a little bit. Now you can't actually run against me. So that was all a waste. And there's no real opposition in India uh, at a federal level, which I think, speaking as someone who is generally pro-competition in democracies and pro, you know, pro-elections being competitive, it's a bad thing for India. Yeah, I think there's always this tension in a democracy like this looking at it from outside where you see leaders making movements that mm -hmm. appear undemocratic or have or certainly there's the implication of a chilling effect on opposition at the same time he's got a net approval rating of six of like 64 percent which is insane he is he is yeah. the uh, a recent survey came out that he is the most popular leader in anything approaching a democracy in the world by a massive, massive margin, and, and so there, there yeah. is this kind of tension of looking at it, looking at it from outside. Sort of, can can you criticize these kind of acts, and can you can you question them? But I think, as you say, there is there is cause for for concern when the flip side of the argument is he is so popular he doesn't need to be doing this kind of stuff right and i think he he would kind of come back and say oh well i i you know i didn't do anything this is just the law but i don't think there's too many people who believe that um as you were speaking just then i i, I kind of did a little bit of research maybe you did this as well on on who gandhi is so let, let's set the record straight there so jawaharlal nehru was you know the founder of in modern india um independent india he had a daughter, uh, Indira Gandhi, I think a fairly famous name. Indira Gandhi had a son called Rajiv Gandhi and Rahul Gandhi is Rajiv Gandhi's son. So the founder of modern day India was Rahul Gandhi's great grandfather and Indira Gandhi was his grandmother. Um, so, you know, all of these people are genuinely like as, as powerful and as, uh, you know, story to political family as you get in India. So he, he's not no one. And, and I, and I mention all of this and I think it's important to realize this because it's kind of wild that Modi in, I think, what, 12, he came to sort of power in 2008, 2010, like really became popular. In a decade, he's kind of managed to dismantle 70 years of Indian kind of politics, the upend the, the dominance of the Congress party 
the, and, and exactly, and kind of destroyed the dynasty of the Gandhis, yeah, the which is the, pretty the amazing. The are now considered virtually unassailable. Well, exactly. It's certainly something I think it's worth keeping an eye on. The world's largest democracy is the go-to line by any Western leader when talking about India, when contrasting it with China, when watching its uh, its growth, you know, mm. compared to compared to China, its population is younger by a, a good twenty to thirty years and still growing, whereas China's population is plateauing and declining. Uh, so it's a, it's a phenomenally important part of the world, which could go in many different directions. And I don't think you can ever take a democracy's longevity for granted especially when you have a wildly popular leader that can basically do whatever he wants to the institutions that are supposed to safeguard it yeah i i agree that i would i would add only to say that if we look at china i think one of the biggest kind of uh, points of comparison between india and china is comparing the fates of the Mm -hmm. two countries over the last 50 years and a lot of people would say the reason india still is you know very a very poor country underdeveloped in many parts is because of its byzantine like democracy whereas china has risen a lot or brought a lot of people out of poverty purely because it can get stuff done i'm not saying i necessarily think that the juice is worth the squeeze there that's not a matter you know that's a that's a moral question and a political theory question but i i suspect the uh, modi's popularity in india is some you know, is, is tied to that idea of like India is, has all these things you just mentioned, huge, now the world's most populous country, you know, huge, huge potential, but we can't get anything done because our democracy is so stifling. Look at our neighbors and look what they've achieved since the late, uh, since the early 80s. But, you know, that's just speculation. Um, but it's, an, it's, it's certainly interesting. Endorsement for the development potential of one party dictatorship. From John Fowler. Glorious. That is Australian Public Service number 24. Not anymore. Not anymore. Because of takes like that. <laughs> and that feels like a good moment to segue to our, our main topic for the day, which is the war in Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. I wanted to rattle through some updates, taking a breath occasionally, John, for you to give us your takes and we can get into a bit of a discussion. Well, mostly just so I don't have to look at your purple face. <laughs> you need to take a break every so often. I thought that was quite harsh and I realized what you meant. <laughs> I started... <laughs> yes, to, to be clear, I'm, I'm advocating for Dimitri breathing as he talks about Ukraine. That's, okay. that's what I'm talking about, folks. I went through. A, I went on a journey there where my first reaction was, given that we are on a video call, to start thinking about what my filters were doing. My second <laughs> step was to just be massively insulted, and then eventually I arrived back that. at you would like me to breathe. Uh, it's uh, juice was worth the squeeze, but the war in Ukraine. It has now been one year, two months, and five days since the reinvasion of Ukraine. Uh, Russian forces have obviously been in Ukraine in one form or another since 2014, but since February of last year marked this new wave of invasion. Russia currently holds about 15% of Ukraine's territory. Uh, That's an approximate figure, of course, the front's moving back and forth. That percentage peaked in March of last year at about 24%, which is about a quarter of the territory before a combination of Russian retreats and Ukrainian counterattacks pushed the Russians back considerably. And that kind of 15% has pretty much been holding since the end of that counteroffensive late last year. Casualties on both sides are really difficult to calculate. We know Russia is losing a lot of troops, and we have estimates that go as high as 200,000. The Ukrainians have been very tight-lipped about their own casualties, but some figures for a combination of dead and wounded have gone as high as 130,000. Those are heavily contested and considered very approximate by all sides, but those are the kind of figures that, for example, the leaks from U.S. intelligence that we talked about uh, a few weeks ago came out about. So we don't quite know how how much both sides have lost, but both sides have clearly lost a huge amount of manpower and machinery. Do you think it's fair to say, again, obviously these are all estimates and we don't know that Russia has lost considerably more troops than Ukraine? Is that a fair thing to say or would we just don't know? I think it's almost certainly that's the case. 
everything we have seen, e- even the most kind of even the most conservative estimates put exactly put Russian figures as higher. They are the ones who are attacking most of the time, and the attacker right. tends to lose more troops than the defender. They also have, frankly, horrific battlefield medicine and casualty evac. Combined with meat grinder tactics, like by their own admission, right? So it's 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 very reasonable to assume that. I just kind of wanted to to see if there was any, or ask you if there was any kind of world in which a pro-Russian kind of outlet might even say that they've lost fewer than the Ukrainians. But I, I haven't seen that myself. No, no one with any basis in reality. Let's let's kind of put it that way. You know, p- people have kind of made all sorts of stuff up. Ammunition and supply shortages continue to absolutely plague both sides. For mm. for both sides, really, uh, artillery ammunition is an absolutely massive shortfall. Their systems aren't firing nearly as many salvos as they could be, just because they are running out of shells and rockets for their multiple launch rocket systems. For Ukraine, this is kind of caused by a few things. They're still very dependent on former Soviet stocks, and they've largely exhausted what they had in the country. So they're reliant Mm. on shipments from the West for this. But of course, the West doesn't manufacture shells for Soviet systems. So they are reliant on stocks from Czech Republic, uh, even as far as Pakistan. And those aren't as in the quantities aren't there. And even the Western stuff, the West militaries by and large were not necessarily prepared to fight long grinding trench warfare where you have to burn through 10,000 shells a day. Most adversaries that the US, for example, was planning to to fight over the last two decades, the US Air Force would pretty much hammer into the ground in a week. There wasn't any sense that you'd sit there for a year shelling each other in artillery duels. Just very few countries that politically could go on an offensive to invade another country and then and and have these tactics of losing Let's say, let's just say two hundred thousand for the sake of argument. But the idea that America could go into Iraq and say, "Okay, well, we're going to lose two hundred thousand people in a year by literally just running them into a meat grinder." I mean, there's, I don't think there's a political. China couldn't do that politically. It's really only Russia and potentially some, you know, despotic regimes in, in Africa and maybe North Korea that could get away with that kind of political decision. So it makes sense to me that the world isn't you know, industrially aligned to, to fight those kinds of wars anymore, right? Yeah, and it's it would be weird if they were in some ways, because if those countries themselves, so if NATO was directly involved in this conflict, if the US homeland was threatened, the US would not have difficulty ramping up massively production of, say, artillery shells for US systems. In a total war scenario, Germany and the US can rapidly ramp up production they've got those systems in place Mm. but that's not what's going on here and that's not necessarily what ukraine needs and they're not getting everything they need well you also forget that in your in in your scenario of an attack on the american homeland and an invasion here that literally every american citizen has a howitzer in their basement and about you know a fully a fully stocked armory of military grade weapons in every house so i feel like they wouldn't need it but you know I, i i'm i'm morbidly joking i'm i live here so it's something that i have to think about pretty regularly as the documentary red dawn amply demonstrated (laughs) the u.s is prepared to resist the invader exactly so so, i mean so this is on the ukrainian side on the russian side they are just losing equipment at rates that are insane to contemplate they're having Mm. to pull tanks that are 70 years old out of storage you know there are t-52s on the battlefield because they are just losing vehicles at astronomical rates well beyond the ability of their largely sanctioned and pretty corrupt and incompetent it must be added military industrial complex to replace they just they simply just can't build tanks fast enough and they've forgotten how and they can't ramp up production as easily as the west can because they've stolen everything and chased a lot of the smart people out of the country uh, is yeah. the short answer. And they were incredibly reliant on German machining tools, etc. Yeah. Now, something I want to ask you, so that's, that sets the scene nicely. I mean, depressingly, Dimitri, a lot of that sounds very familiar. Like that that has been, you know, we can adjust the numbers and whatnot, but that kind of idea mm. of 
trench warfare and, and running out of military, like literally out of ammunition to kill each other with has been the case for quite some time. But what is potentially new is that this long promise, I mean, the Russian counteroffensive in the winter at the start of, you know, February kind of didn't amount to much, right? Like maybe they've taken Bakhmut, but, you know, that's unclear. Probably not. Um, but there's this idea of the Ukrainian counteroffensive, which has been mooted for many months now to be launched in the spring. Do we have a? I saw something recently that Ukrainian forces have crossed the. Now you correct my pronunciation, but the Dnipro River. Um, the Dnipro River, yeah. So I'm not even going to try that. That's the benefit of having a Ukrainian on the podcast. Um, but so yeah, can you just give us like a, a quick update on where we're at with that Ukrainian counteroffensive? Has it begun? What does it look like? Well, on my daily calls with Ukrainian military high command, uh, here's I assume team. you all have those, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we 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 meet at the Banya and sort of put on our vishavanka. <laughs> So this is this is what we this is what we know. The Ukrainians have been fairly open about the fact that they plan to launch a counteroffensive in spring. They have, for fairly obvious military reasons, not announced a date or even a target. They have somewhere between seven hundred and one thousand three hundred kilometers of front they could potentially target, uh, and for for very obvious military reasons, especially given that. Russian military intelligence and Russian sort of signals intelligence has proven itself to be fairly bad at predicting what the Ukrainians are going to do on any given day. They are not telegraphing that. What we know is the Ukrainians have received something like 98% of the military vehicles that they were promised from the West to coincide with this and the training. Yes, but I think that combat vehicles is a specific formulation that excludes tanks. Yeah, right, okay, because a, that's a crazy high number. Yes, but I think what they're saying is of the ones that were promised, they've gotten 98%. This was the right. statement and sort of been trained on them. But what we're talking about here is like Bushmasters not, and yeah, a similar yeah, yeah. kind, like armored personnel cars at most, not heavy. Toyota Hiluxes. Hey, they win a lot of wars. Every little helps. Every little helps. Uh, so they've received those. We know that uh, at the moment, it's still basically raining in Ukraine. And when it rains in Ukraine, a lot of the fields and frankly, some of the roads turn to mud. You do not want to be conducting an offensive over mud. So there is a sense that the Ukrainians are waiting for basically the mud to dry so that they have full maneuverability. The previous offensive that they launched last year that was so successful was successful in large part because of their doctrine of moving very quickly. They used agile brigades. They didn't kind of take on fortifications head on. They, wherever possible, bypassed them, encircled them, threatened their supply lines, and made the Russians manning these defenses just go home or pull back. And this, you have to imagine this is the way that they had that they plan to fight this war too, because it's how NATO fights. It's how you're kind of supposed to fight. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because one of the differences between that offensive, which was what last, like I want to say September, was that right? Or maybe even earlier. One of the differences, at least from what I've read, is that the Russians have spent the winter basically digging trenches, putting in tank traps and fortifying at least most of the front around the land you know the so-called land bridge between Crimea and the rest of Russia because they are expecting a Ukrainian counteroffensive they know that they probably can't resist it in terms of just military fighting and so they are going to make Ukraine go real slow and have to go you know thousands of hundreds of kilometers around things and then meet them there so I, I wonder if I mean who knows but it feels like this might be a bit of a different kind of counteroffensive than it was when they literally ran from kind of you know the outskirts of kiev all the way up to the russian border in in a matter of like a couple of days wasn't it it was it was crazy fast it was incredibly quick and at the time it's true there were questions about whether ukraine was even capable of counteroffensives as a form of warfare yeah so i think there was a huge element of surprise on the ukrainian side here they don't have that but to hopefully make you feel a little bit more optimistic. There are a lot of questions about the fortifications that the Russians are building and to what extent many of them are fairly performative, like they are showing off to high command 
look we're fortified. Most of these fortifications, with the possible exception of maybe minefields, aren't that much use if you don't have troops manning them. A trench, a tank trap, a pillbox is only as useful as the unit that is inside it shooting at advancing troops. And the line that the Russians have to cover, the sheer scale of it, combined with Huge, the fact yeah. that they can barely they can barely coordinate their armed forces and their troops aren't super reliable or motivated means that it is entirely possible that the Ukrainians are going to be able to find weak spots in this punch through it and get behind this to sort of get around the line of Maginot and kind of outflank and and do that kind of thing but there is a mm. massive expectations management game going on with a lot of the commentary kind of asking the question Okay, so three scenarios. Scenario one, the counteroffensive doesn't happen or it doesn't achieve much. Scenario two, the counteroffensive happens and it basically throws the Russians out of the country, retakes either all of the land since February of last year, all of the land, or say all of the land minus Crimea. And in the third scenario, the counteroffensive happens, it enjoys some success, but not a crushing sort of doesn't break the back of the Russian military, Russia retains control of a significant percentage of Ukrainian territory. And a lot of the conversation now is like, okay, and then what happens? Well, that's a perfect spot for me to kind of push this conversation away from the military stuff into kind of, mm. let's assume it's the the third option, which I think, I, I you know, is probably mm. the most likely and not saying that it's, you know, definitely going to happen. But, you know, if you had to, if you're a betting man, you would kind of say that, um, you know, that, they'll probably achieve some successes, but Russia will probably still maintain some control in, in Eastern Ukraine. What What is next? Like, do, do we go around again? Do we have a summer fighting season and we, you know, the the gains and the losses become incrementally smaller over time and then we go into the winter, we stole it, and then we, you know, how long does this go on? Or is there a peace kind of negotiation to be had and what what would that look like and before you kind of give your thoughts on that i i, I kind of want to put the question to you in the context of xi jinping and china clearly trying to insert themselves in between china and ukraine or let's let's sorry in between russia and ukraine let's say russia and the west as this kind of good faith disinterested party who can bring both people both sides to the table because they have sway in Moscow. Xi Jinping called President Zelensky for the first time last week. Uh, oh, sorry, earlier this week. Interestingly, didn't call it a war, kind of called it the Ukraine crisis. Clearly used a lot of the messaging that... I don't think it was necessarily parroting Russian propaganda, but certainly designed not to be poorly received in the Kremlin. And then, obviously, that's on the back of the French, the Chinese ambassador to France's comments about how Ukraine isn't a sovereign country or doesn't have a great argument for sovereignty. So let's let's start peace negotiations from that that kind of um, angle. W w I guess all of that is to say, what is your take on what's next if we assume that there is a peace negotiation to be had in the relatively near future? So I think it's important to kind of separate those two things. For Ambassador Lushai's comments, this is the Chinese ambassador to France. Previously to Canada and with a background of incendiary kind of wolf warrior comments. So like there's a big debate going on in, in the circles that I hang, the, the very fun circles that I hang around in, with, which is like, was he speaking on behalf of 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 you know, Xi Jinping, was he trying to guess what Xi Jinping want, would want him to say without getting approval? Or was he, or has he just gone rogue? You know, I don't think we know the answer, but I think it's safe to assume that he didn't go rogue. So it looks like that might be a Chinese unofficial position that Ukraine is something different at international law than, a, than another country. Yeah, I mean, his comments weren't just on Ukraine. His comments were something former to the Soviet effect Republic, of... Right? that the former Soviet republics were never, like, formally recognized as states. So are they Nonsense, really to be states? clear. Yeah, which is, to be clear, absolutely uh, absurd. We're not endorsing it here. Uh, maybe John is. You know, he loves one-party one party states, apparently. Howdy. Thinks they're very efficient. But uh, for my part, I, I don't agree. But I think what's going on here is really, really interesting. Because one way to interpret it is this is China forever trying to walk that line that it's found itself in where its geopolitics and its messaging forever has been sovereignty over everything, national kind of border integrity over everything. No one is ever allowed to interfere in what you do at home, which is how the Chinese have always pushed back on human rights complaints and even on the Taiwan question. Hong Kong. Because Hong Kong, because they believe their definition of China 
includes those territories. And their argument is no one should ever be able to mess with anything another country does on its own land. And that has come right up against its, its no limits. No limits friendship, yeah. It's no limits friend Russia pretty blatantly driving tanks across a internationally recognized sovereign border in the most egregious violation imaginable of that principle. So one way to interpret it is this was China trial ballooning a permission structure to reconcile mm-hmm. those two clearly diametrically opposed ideas. That's like definition one. The second one is, and I wonder maybe you could you could help us out with this. What does the term wolf warrior diplomat or wolf warrior diplomacy actually refer to? The, the term comes from a very famous action film in China or a series of action films. Think kind of like Rambo-esque kind of stuff in which a Chinese uh, soldier kind of goes to Africa and is welcomed into villages liberating, you know, an oppressor, um, which, you know, you don't need too many guesses to imagine who that country was. Bloody Belgium. <laughs> there you go. Well, I mean, if you, yeah, they, have, they have a history in Africa, that's for sure. But, um, but it, was a, it was a film, don't quote me on the year, let's say 2013, 14, 15. It came out around then, the first iteration. It was a real success. It was this idea of ch- the first mainstream emergence of Chinese like patriotism and nationalism and militarism being celebrated in a way that we see pretty regularly in the US, right? Like Top Gun is a perfect example of something like that. Chinese Michael Bay kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly right. Yes. And so the, the, the movie was called Wolf Warrior and it's been kind of adopted as a term to describe China's kind of standing on its two feet, going out into the world, being far more assertive, being far more like, yeah, we are China and we are a global leader. And when you use it in the terms of diplomacy, it's been used to kind of describe this trend in diplomacy, particularly since Xi Jinping got his second term in 2017 and decided to be much more assertive and belligerent in foreign policy. This idea that diplomats aren't being polite. They are saying what they want to say. They they come to the US and they 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 shove it in the face of the US by saying, you know, you're a, an oppressor and an imperial like dog and all this kind of stuff. They did it to Australia by calling us a paper tiger and pathetic and it like pretty confrontational nonsense. Um mm-hmm. but it's a stream of Chinese diplomacy called wolf warrior diplomacy. And you know, I think there was a a belief that it might die down a little bit because it's been received pretty poorly, but it's clearly still going strong. And and Lu Xiaoyer, the French, the Chinese ambassador to France, is a noted proponent of it. Um, did it while he was in Canada before he went to France. I heard actually before, before I throw it back to you, I heard an interesting anecdote from Bill Bishop, who writes the the Great China um, newsletter called Sinicism on a podcast. He said that uh, he had some friends who wondered whether whether the Chinese diplomats been turned by American the American CIA because they were doing a far better job at discrediting China than America ever could. And I thought that was quite an interesting idea because I don't think there's any doubt that this wolf warrior diplomacy is not, not doing China any favors outside its own borders. And I think that's really interesting because the question that people have always had about wolf warrior diplomacy, given that actually, you know, China's a very savvy diplomatic actor generally, you don't, you, this is not, this, this is a country that's been doing diplomacy in one form or another for something like 2000 years. They're, they're not new to this. The sense has always been, are these wolf warriors being instructed to be this belligerent explicitly by Beijing? Or is this a case of diplomats far from capital who are speaking to a constituency that is not where they are posted, but is back in Beijing? Uh, is this diplomats That's demonstrating right. their adherence to Xi thought, irrespective of the damage they do to the local relationship? Because their perception is that what the party cares about back home is their personal loyalty, even more than their effectiveness at winning friends and influencing people. And that's 100% right. And that applies to, to Ambassador Liu here as well, where we don't, we don't know whether he got a call saying, send up this test balloon, or whether he thought he would score just off the off his own back score some points by kind of setting out this new theory of the case and being far more belligerent than you would expect mm. and i think frankly that's you know so, some of the walk back that the chinese government has since done that where basically they came out and said 
he was speaking in a personal capacity in answer to a question and didn't kind of represent Chinese policy in that moment, which isn't really how ambassadors work. Well, let's let's Dimitri, let's call a spade a spade. It's utter crap. Like you need to you need to sort of when we 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 kind of prevaricate because a lot of things in geopolitics are complex and there are two sides to multiple sides to every issue. The idea that he was speaking in his personal capacity when he went on French national TV after being posted as ambassador to France is crap. And and, and they are hoping that people kind of don't, you know, don't call it crap because it's total crap. He was speaking on behalf of China and China has a diplomatic issue now to kind of clarify their comments and say, no, we don't think that. We think that Ukraine is clearly a sovereign nation, just like every other sovereign nation. But they haven't done that, right? And that's the important thing to note. They haven't done that. She, I think, probably moved his phone call with Zelensky up a, up a couple of days or up a couple of weeks or or decided to do it when he maybe had decided not to do it because of those comments, but he still didn't clarify them. He didn't say, no, he was wrong. They're saying, oh, he's speaking his personal capacity. It's nonsense. So we've kind of gone all around this and, and I know we're running out of time. So I want to ask you, like, how do you think that will affect the peace process if there is a peace process? Because from where I'm sitting, China's going to be, has inserted itself right in the middle of that and it's going to be very hard to get them out of there. I think Russia will probably only come to the table if China's involved. What, what, from a Ukrainian perspective, what, what do you think it, it means? So taking the most optimistic, naive to the point of absurdity take on this. Which is our speciality. Absolutely. Bread and butter. Is that the Chinese are being so cautious with language around things like Ukrainian sovereignty and kind of playing with Kremlin-esque language in order to ensure that they can remain credible right. brokers in the region rather than throwing in their lot one way or the other. That, I think, it'd be nice if that were true. I'm not sure I buy it. I think a more credible answer is they just don't particularly care very much and they they value their alliance, and that's, I think, a strong term, their kind of client-master-state relationship that's emerging with Russia over mm-hmm. Ukraine's feelings and the diplomatic fallout of all this, and that's why they're playing this the way they are. I think that's fair. I would also say, in terms of uh, in terms of any kind of peace process em- uh, emerging, for some negotiations, it's really important to have good officers and an honest broker. And you know, there are candidates for that. Turkey could potentially play that role. The UN could potentially play that role. And yes, China could play that role. This war will end or reach a ceasefire the moment Putin decides that he is done. So that's interesting. Do you think Do you think that's right? Because I wonder, like, yeah, I, I take your point. And I, I don't disagree with you. But, like, I mean, Ukraine's been talking a big game about, like, not stopping until Russia's out of Ukraine. And that's a, you know, Putin might decide he's done tomorrow and, you know, manufacture some domestic reasons for, like, why it's a huge success and all that kind of stuff and instruct China to say, okay, we're, we're done. Will Ukraine accept that? Will Ukraine accept China as a as a intermediate? When I say when Putin decides that he's done, I mean and pulls his troops out. I see. Because if he even stopped sending fresh troops, then the troops over there would be overwhelmed and would be kicked out of there in a month. So it's basically once he is done feeding troops into the meat grinder, once he's admitted is defeat, when basically can... is what you're saying. Basically, once he has admitted defeat. But that's not going to happen. Well, the thing is, we don't, as you said, he can declare victory and go home at any time and his domestic media will sell it domestically and people will buy it. So he has that option at any time and no one has been able to accurately predict what he thinks about anything at any given moment in the last 15 years. So Mm. he could make that choice, especially subject to if there are emerging pressures in russia or if the military the russian military begins collapsing begins just genuinely not being able to sustain even defensive operations and humiliation becomes a risk at that point he can come to the table and kind of say something like let's put something on the table like freezing the borders at where they were before the reinvasion without anybody legally ceding territory to the other side Mm. so so if if ukraine were offered were offered a ceasefire in line with what was being negotiated i don't know if they would take it but that would at least be an indication of his kind of some level of seriousness and i think there might be a conversation 
But all mm. of that has always depended on Putin no longer believing that his continuing to attack Ukraine is in his interests. And there is yet to be an indication that's happened. Well, I don't think, I think, I think we don't have a sense of what kind of information he's getting about how the war's going. Uh, so I don't know how, how he feels about the situation on the ground because we don't know what he knows about the situation on the ground. And secondly, you know, I don't think we have a great sense of the political dynamics in Russia such that like if, I mean, I think it's highly likely based on my very armchair view that he can't stop doing this politically because it's his life and death kind of situation for the man himself. So, you know, who knows? I Last question. So from what you're saying there, China's involvement in any peace process as a, as a good faith intermediary, I'm, I'm saying that with kind of air quotes around it, but if that's what they are, doesn't really make a difference then because it's not until Putin makes his mind up to do what Ukraine wants that this will be like you th- what you're saying is Ukraine will keep fighting I think Ukraine will keep fighting and Russia will keep fighting as long as Putin makes them fight I think China unless China were willing to expend the political and economic capital to apply pressure directly on Putin to change his calculus about this yeah their good officers aren't worth that much the reason there is no peace deal isn't the absence of good officers yeah, and it looks like they're trying to apply pressure in the other direction on Ukraine and the West to like change their position. So, I guess the exactly. the, the 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 bummer is that you're kind of left with the conclusion that peace isn't imminent. I mean, we'll have to see how the counteroffensive goes. Basically, there may right. be a a resolution one way or another, and that might be a good space to to leave it. To absolutely, thank, yeah. Thank you all very much for listening. I think these are issues we'll definitely want to get into in subsequent podcasts as well as the other topics you folks suggest to us as always we very much encourage you to subscribe to the international intrigue newsletter which is phenomenal uh some have said it will overtake morning brew on subscribers within the year but i believe it'll take 18 months (laughs) that's very i appreciate that i also very much encourage you to listen to intrigue out loud the the international intrigue podcast yeah uh, with ethan there's some great great episodes recently come out and about to come out yeah the one that's dropping i think literally today is i think incredible it's like actually a great piece of journalism ethan interviewed the well an opposition leader in rwanda who's been in jail for eight years for opposing paul kagame who's the leader of rwanda and ethan interviewed her and 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 heard her story which was i think pretty powerful stuff but folks should give it give it a listen if you search intrigue out loud in your podcast players you'll find it it's the It's the first one that pops up. And as always, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please do give us a subscribe and recommend us to your friends, as well as get in touch and let us know what you thought of this episode, where you wildly disagree with us, and what we can do better next time or what you'd like to see us cover. So with that, let me say goodbye and we will see you soon.